it's a big issue for females getting more opportunities, but there's something happening in there that there's not enough support or the right level of support to keep both male and females coming through the ranks. And, you know, I'd love to be able to share my experience to, to change that. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Calling all women who love their ride. I would like to introduce you to a one-of-a-kind women's motor fest. You will not want to miss this sisterhood celebration of women-owned whips, cars, trucks, motorcycles, ATVs. If it has a motor, it belongs. Ladies, this is our motor fest. Boys are welcome to attend but the spotlight will be owned by the women in their whips. Check out all the details by visiting womensmotorfest.com. Emma Mackendo is in the driver's seat today. Emma is the managing director of AA Recycling and Pick Apart. Even though she spent her entire life around the industry, she never held a role in the industry until now. Emma has extensive background in business and the financial industry, but recently took the plunge into running her family's auto and metal recycling business that was established over 35 years ago. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Emma Mackendo in the driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Emma? I'm really good. Thanks, Jamie. It's really hot here in Melbourne today. I think summer's on the way, so everyone's happy. Well, it's crazy because you're literally a day ahead of me. Mm-hmm. 11 a.m. the next day. It's Wednesday, your time. It's mm-hmm. Tuesday here in good old Midwest in <laughs> Columbus, Ohio. So super excited. You are officially the second Australian <laughs> on the Femcanic Garage podcast. So congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> Represent. I'm very honored. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to dive into this because your particular story actually starts when you were a little girl. But it wasn't the path that a lot of people may have thought that you would take. So I want to start this journey, but I want to start by asking this question just to kind of set it up. Did you ever think that you would be in the automotive industry in the way that you are right now? That's a great question and a great place to start. And the short answer is no, Um, not until a couple of years back. And I think just to set the listeners up for that, Mm. you actually were born into a very um, automotive immersed family. I was. So it it would have, you would have thought that, hey, you just go right into the family business, but that is not the path that you chose. And you spent literally, was it like decades outside of the automotive industry? So why don't we start back a little bit? And where did you spend the majority of your career? What industry? Like most of my siblings, I'm one of five. We followed the traditional path of high school into university. We actually all went to university and I studied a business degree. Um, I always had a keen passion for sport as well. So I thought potentially I might go into sports management, which I did work in for a couple of years. But then after I finished my degree, I actually looked at a broad consulting Wait, I got to ask out of pure curiosity. Mm. Typically, people who are in sports management uh, like sports. Is is that the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually played elite netball growing up. Now, I know netball is not big in the States, but it's the biggest participation sport for women in Australia. And I kind of grew up through the state Wait, ranks. hold on, hold on. I'm going to have to pause. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be – it, it sounded like you said nipple. 
And is that <laughs> I, so? I I want to, and I'm probably not the only one where they're like, I- I'm sorry, what is that? <laughs> what is this sport that women? What is that? This? Yes. Can, what is it called? Netball. Netball. You got it. Oh wow. <laughs> I, I'm glad we cleared that up yes. early on because it could have been awkward. Yes, I'm like, I'm really confused. It sounds like a very inappropriate sport, but netball. Yes. Okay. And for kids to play. I'm with you. Now, Exactly. what is netball? It sounds like volleyball to me. Is it similar to that or no? Yeah. So if you think more about basketball, so think basketball with a smaller ball, no backboard, a slightly smaller ring. And positions on the court where you can and can't go, not as free flow as basketball. So it's it's really very big and popular. Are the rings horizontal or vertically placed? No, same as basketball. Okay. But just smaller diameter. How how tall are the rings or how high off the ground? Same height as basketball. Interesting. Yeah, no backboard. And seven people on the court at once, but you have your particular zones. So you're either up the defending end, up the goal scoring end, or kind of the running it through the middle of the court. So very, very big and popular in Australia. Mm -hmm. As I said, biggest participation sport for women. Also massive in uh, England where um, it has strong roots as well. But also in Jamaica, they've got a fantastic team as well. Um, And across there, it's growing. So and New Zealand, they're our biggest rivals. Got it. Now, I'm guessing you played all through school then. I did, yes. Yeah, so I played so from an eight-year-old where I'd go along and, um, you know, watch my older sister play who's 10 years older than me and often I'd, you know, I wasn't old enough technically to join a team at that stage so I said, okay, that's fine. I'll be the coach of my 10-year-old sister's team. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I used to go dressed in the outfit just in case they needed somebody extra on court and I guess, yeah, it just went from there. I love the sport. I'm passionate about it and, you know, up until my mid-20s uh, was playing at the highest level in the state. You got to qualify this for me. When you say highest level, I'm trying to translate that for the listeners for the U.S. Yes. What does that mean exactly? Well, I'd say probably like the college type level there. Gotcha. So, you know, one below the professional league. So you were pretty good. Well, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I guess Own it, it girl. Own it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that was my world for a very long time. And I did actually go and work in sports management. Um, we actually represented Peter Brock, who is a famous Australian race car driver. Um, some of your audience may know of him. And so that was a great opportunity to, you know, to start to understand business and sport. But my, my passion probably then expanded a little bit wider into more general kind of strategy. How do businesses run? You know, what does it take to run a good business? How do you evolve? How, what should you be thinking about five, 10 years down the track? And that's when I applied uh, for a graduate position with Accenture, who are a global consulting company. So I started my professional career there. And I have to say, it had been, you know, one of the roles where I haven't worked harder, but I had an amazing time, amazing time, amazing opportunities, got to travel a lot came to the States quite a lot for training, great investment in people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it really started. You know, you said Accenture? Accenture, yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So I I guess I just kind of fell into that in a way of looking at what kind of opportunities are out there for graduates have done a business degree. It looked like a great opportunity. I was in my early 20s. You know, there was promise of overseas work, travel opportunities, great backing of their people, a lot of like-minded people like myself had applied and been successful at roles there. And so kind of from day one, you felt like you knew everybody. Everyone had similar approach philosophies, um, wanted to learn, wanted to go well, wanted to understand and I guess think about what the future would look like. So, you know, that was a great, great place for me to learn how to move, I guess, from mm-hmm. studying into professional life. And I was there for about five years, predominantly working in financial services. Gotcha. And where did you go from there? So from there, I actually moved uh, around the time that I was was married and, and, you know, thinking about the fact that we'd like to start a family and, and, and travel wasn't as easy to do at that point. Um, so I did look locally to a role where I was predominantly Melbourne-based and I ended up working at uh, one of our big financial services. We've got a, a four big banks here in, in Australia and I started working at one of those. And that was the next 13 years for me. Three children, one husband so far. No. 
<laughs> that was a joke. Yes, yes. And and really up until um, 2019 when I kind of thought, you know, what, what next? Um, you know, essentially being in financial services or in, in that professional area for 20 years, you know, I've, I'm, I'm 45 now, you know, what does the next period look like? Um, I'm raising three children 50-50 with my, well, my husband and I share all the duties. We're a 50-50 household. Um, we've both worked part-time since we've had our first child. We've both been home to do all the home duties, take them to their different activities. And for us- Wait, I got to pause you a second, Emma. That's an interesting thing. Here in the States, if it, <laughs> I'm not saying all people in the States, when, when I hear 50-50, mm. I think of spouses that are separated and have- Right. Yeah. No. I I did think that as soon as I said it, I thought that's not what I meant. <laughs> but you explained it enough where I was able to quickly pick up. It's a fascinating concept to me. How old's your oldest? Eleven. Eleven years old. That's right. Because when we talked, uh, your oldest is the same age as my youngest, and I have two. So since he was born, mm-hmm. because you have two boys and a girl, and your girl sits in between the two boys. Mm-hmm. You worked part-time and your husband worked part-time. Wow. That's a really cool thing. I don't know why that's a mind blow for me, Emma. Yeah. But you just don't hear about that in the States. And I think it is such a cool thing because then neither spouse is sacrificing their career. That's right. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's... It's something that is on the up here in Australia and, and I'd, I'd love to talk more about it and to, I guess, open the door for more big organisations and any organisations because even in my current role where I have 35 people in our family business that I run, that we've got a number of people that work flexibly and, you know, it's it's the future of work and I think particularly off the back of COVID is it's accelerated that somewhat. But for us, you know, it was really about having the conversation with our employees you know, showing that we really want to both progress our careers and we've always had good support to do that and good sponsorship to be able to, I guess, essentially move up into more and more senior roles when you're working three or four days a week. And I think that for me has been fantastic and it has literally been the last 10 years, so it's not a, a new thing. I think there's more and more um, support for it in the last probably five years but I, I kind of, I say it tongue in cheek, but it shouldn't be, um, you know, I say we're the kind of diversity pinup couple, but, you know, I think that we actually have shown that it can work and we've both progressed our careers continually and been able to do it. And I think for the kids as well, it's really important that they see that both parents can have flexibility. Both parents equally do the dishes, both parents do the washing, the cooking, and being able to have the opportunity for both the mum and the and you know the dad or the partners, whoever it is, the couple, to be able to then take the children to their activities. So we didn't miss out on that. So things like swimming lessons or kinder gym, which is like, you know, basic gymnastics for kids, all those things that our kids did while they were preschool age, we both got the opportunity to share in and have that experience. And they're the highs. But you also get to share the lows and understand that some days, wow, it's just bloody hard work. Cheers to that. Yeah. (laughs) Is that something you and your husband had always talked about or is it kind of an opportunity presented itself and it's just like, "Mm, let's try it or? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we, I guess pre-kids, you don't sometimes think about these things. Um, But once we'd had kids and thought about maternity leave and and we have really good support here in, in most organizations for paid maternity leave, not all yet. Uh, and the government assists as well. But I think post-kids were like, well, actually, this might be something that would really be great for us. And we both were open to it. We both proactively had the conversation with our employees. And it just went from there. And I think once you get it going, it's, you know, it's kind of set. And it's something that we've kind of been able to dial up and down as well. So, you know, for example, if I would went back after, and I took a year off with each of my children, I might have started at three days for a couple of months and then gone back up to four. And then Paul might have gone from five, which he worked when I was on maternity leave, dial it back to four. So we had that opportunity. But I think what it comes down to is is stepping in or leaning into that conversation because there's actually benefits for the companies as well supporting that um, because you get greater retention, greater engagement. But it also gives the opportunity for the individuals to, you know, not miss those milestones, you know, if, if they want to. Is that something that you implemented or has been implemented in your current company? 
Yeah. So, I mean, we have different different um, people at different age groups at different phases of their life. But yeah, like we've got quite a few people that work, um, you know, a four-day week, a compressed week, a three-day week. Um, one, one of our employees has two young children, so she's doing three days now, but with the aim when they start school, she would like to be considered for more work. So I think it's not a, a set and forget. It's got to dial up and down depending on the situation. Uh, we've got a, a very proud, we have an 80-year-old employee that works with us. He was two days a week. He's just dropped back to one, but he loves coming in. It's a part of his weekly ritual. He loves talking to customers. He's as sharp as a knife and it, it's it's fantastic for everybody. And I think it's great to have those role models in society that, you know, you can work as long as you want to, uh, as long as you're feeling up to it and, you know, you're, you're engaged in the community and it's a win-win, I think. I'm just curious in Australia, how does benefits work then? Yep. Because a lot of times here in the States, if someone works part-time, that's forfeiting the opportunity to take advantage of benefits. Yeah. So it, it again, it is it is a balance and, you know, we have the pension as well for people that are retired. I think it's around making it work, but also I think it's interesting, interesting that people make the choice of how they want to contribute to society and separate it somewhat from how do I make the most out of the government schemes. No, that makes sense. Mm. I just love that concept. And for whatever reason, it never occurred to me to have that as an option. Yeah. Here in the U.S., I can't speak for other countries because I've never lived in another country. (laughs) But here in the U.S., I feel like there's this kind of a stigma Mm. around working part time, like you're not as committed to a company. And I think that could, in many senses, be incredibly far from the truth. I agree. And I have to say, when I came back after having my first child, and and as I said, I worked, you know, in in, uh, kind of consulting, which, you know, you work hard, you play hard, but it's pretty hardcore. And I had some quite high stress roles in the second financial services institution that I worked at before I had children. But the one thing I remember clearly as if it was yesterday was when I worked three days a week after having had come back from having my first child is I was like, this is like, this skill is amazing. You just know how to prioritize to cut through the crap to get what you need to get done because you know you have to be out the door at five to get to childcare before they close at six and to get home. And you know you're not in the office tomorrow, so you've already either prioritized that or you've delegated or you've finished those tasks. I remember stepping back and saying, if we could only teach everybody this skill, imagine how productive teams would be. Because I think when you work five days, there is always, you know, it's kind of, you're almost don't have that perspective of I've got to get stuff done because I know I'm here every day and I know I'm here till nine to five or whatever your hours are. Yeah. But knowing when you've got that kind of balance, it's like, how do I actually help me make decisions more quickly? And it actually may be more successful. So that, that was a major takeaway. It would definitely motivate me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, doing a, a four-day week opposed to a five-day week, that makes perfect sense. The great thing here in Australia is it's, it's, it's actually like, yep, you want flexibility. Okay, let's talk about how to make that work as opposed to saying, you know, what do you mean? We don't do that. It's actually now very accepted, which is great. And um, I'd love to share, Jamie, that right now I work four days a week. So I am the managing director. I run to, you know, two businesses essentially, and I work four days a week. But you know what? I I am on the phone, obviously, if there is some type of emergency. But for me, to me, it's I get that balance of being around and doing those activities with my kids still, which I find is very important. And I want to continue to maintain that. But you know what else, Jamie? I think it actually makes me a better leader because I'm actually empowering my team that are there on the day to actually step up and make those decisions. Now, you do need to set boundaries and provide that support. And, you know, for the first couple of times, they might ring you and say, hey, should is it okay to do this? But once you give them that opportunity and set the boundaries with support, they actually step right into it, I think. And I'm, I'll, have to, I'll ask them when I get back to the office, but I actually think that it really helps with their development, their empowerment, mm-hmm. and their learning. Because to me, a great leader is someone who can essentially make their role redundant. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. So for me, having that day that I'm not in the office, um, it allows me to, you know, refrain and, and think about what, what's important to get organized at home and for my kids, but also it gives them the great opportunity to lean in and step up. And I've only seen success from that. And I've implemented that kind of strategy for, you know, 10 years now. You kind of alluded to it a little bit. Um, when your time was done in the financial industry, it still wasn't 
evident or very obvious to you to step into your parents' family business. So let's talk a little bit about what that business is. Yes. And if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe just give a quick summary of how it all started because it was back in 1976. So Yeah, please. So as I mentioned, I'm one of five kids. I'm the youngest. And at the time I was just born in, in 76. And my parents started a wholesale gas distribution company. So essentially selling gas tanks for cars. And when I say gas, I don't mean petrol, which you call it in the States. I mean uh, LPG gas. And it was a massive, massive deal. We'd, um, you know, obviously five kids. Explain what that is. Or liquid petroleum, liquid petroleum gas. Liquid petroleum. An alternate way to run your car, essentially. Gotcha. And they, they basically had, you know, five kids under 10 years old and they saw this vision and to be early adopters to start this business in Australia. And they took out a loan of $20,000 with a mortgage already. It was a massive, massive risk. And my parents started the business in their garage. I'm glad they took that risk because it paid off and it became quite a success until that way of running cars kind of really declined substantially, you know, about 10 years ago, five years ago. And then in 1986, they actually saw the opportunity to start a business in auto and metal recycling. So they had um, looked to the States for that concept of a self-service auto recycler or wrecker and saw the opportunity could be something that would be very successful here in Australia. And in 1986, they started that business. So, you know, I think my parents were always very forward thinking. Um, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. I, you know, my mum has always been a leader, an equal leader in the business, uh, was with my father and they started that. And, you know, for the 70s, really pioneers in the business. But also I look at my mum as a role model, as a pioneer of just getting in there and rolling up the sleeves, having a go and getting it done. And I think that's where, you know, that I kind of get that um, mantra around, you know, we're all, we're all in it together, all ships to shore, you know, roll up your sleeves, you do what you've got to do to get it done. I have to pause one second. Because I'm wrapping my mind around this, like what exactly what you're talking about. So in Australia, in 86, when they decided to kind of um, expand their business, right? Hmm. You're the, your mom's a trailblazer. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not like in those situations, I'm guessing if your folks company, the company that you now lead, is similar to the models that I observe here in the States. If if they looked at the States for to kind of look at the model, mm. I imagine a chunk of land, mm -hmm. you have cars that have stopped working that are on that chunk of land. People can come in and pick parts mm -hmm. from those vehicles to fix their current running vehicle and stop me if I'm off. And, no, no. and I know this may sound very you know rudimentary that I'm getting down to, but I think it's important to just kind of paint this picture in that what you're mom was doing. Now, before people make any assumptions, what would be the type of tasks that your mom would do? Are they like you and your, your mom and dad would do? Was she strictly administrative stuff or? Yes. So essentially they both were. So, you know, really looking from the business side mm -hmm. and then employing the right people with the skills to actually facilitate and help run the business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my – and my dad, he wasn't a mechanic. So, you know, he he had worked always, you know, in cars and around cars um, and had worked at his first job as, as helping in a mechanics essentially. So he knew his way around a car. But, you know, he went and put himself through night school and did a business degree as well. So they, they did start it from a here is a business opportunity. How do we get the right people around us with the skills and expertise and then let's work together to make this thing a success. I love it because, <laughs> God, what a great role model for you. It's consistent with what you're doing with your husband and that there's this 50-50 shared responsibility, the good, bad, and the ugly, you know, all of it. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, man, I can only imagine the stories that your mom yeah. <laughs> must have and some of the challenge she probably faced with getting people to listen because she is yeah, yeah. a woman in this industry, and especially then. 
It is. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's probably too young to, to really understand and see it. But from an early age, we'd walk from primary school, like everybody did, walked home, but I'd walk to the factory and um, with another little friend from school whose mum worked in our business as well. And we'd just, we'd make up games at the back of the factory, we'd watch people. But I think that's where it just, you know, all kind of started is, again, not technically working in the business, but just immersed through watching them start it from home, watching them grow into factory, looking at, you know, buying the land to run our pick apart um, recycling business is it was kind of happening around me and probably I wasn't really um, appreciating that I was absorbing it and it's probably all just came together. And I think your question was uh, around when did I kind of know that I would be working in the business is in a way it was kind of, I guess, um, all just kind of happening and absorbing through how I was brought up. You know, I talked about my sports. I am a competitive person. I think, you know, I set goals. I, I, I work toward them. This concept of um, rolling up your sleeves, getting stuff done, that's who I've been, whether I've been in financial services or not. I don't think I'm a different person now because I've moved industry. I think I've just been able to take or consolidate all that experience now and immerse myself with the people that are the experts to get the job done and try and grow, which is not dissimilar, I guess, now we're chatting that my parents did in 1986 when they started our auto wrecking business. But um, it, it really wasn't till probably two and a half years ago, um, back to your original question, was when did I know that I would step into this business? Um, I had decided that it was time to move on from financial services and think about what the next opportunity was, where I could work, um, you know, and balance things and care for my children while they're very young still and have that kind of four day a week as I'd spoken about. And, um, you know, I had thought about starting my own business. So I was kind of going through thinking about opportunities. What could that look like? You know, I've got a lot of skills. I would say that I'm an adaptive leader rather than a technical one which means I can really use my skills and transfer them across a number of different industries. And um, it wasn't, uh, it was with two clear things I'd love to share. Um, the first one was I had gone out for lunch with my two sisters and we were sitting chatting and I was talking to them about my business ideas. And one of my sisters said, you know, we've got this family business. Look at all those skills you've had. Wouldn't it be amazing for you to think about stepping in and I guess being the next kind of custodian for our business? And I was like, it was kind of like, what? <laughs> and and as we further spoke, it kind of sunk in and I was like, well, yeah, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I, I'm, I'm not qualified in the automotive field as a technical expert, but I'm certainly qualified as an adaptive leader. I've run businesses before. I know how to, I, I think I'm a, a good listener. I think I learn quickly. You know, I've led people before. I make big financial decisions. I'm good at risk management you know, they're all the things that those first principles of being able to run a business that you can take anywhere. And I actually thought, well, um, maybe, maybe that is something I should look at. And then I think the, the second one was when I was um, probably, yeah, it might've been a couple of months later, I was talking to my mentor who um, I was just randomly put together uh, or partnered with. We both worked in financial services when I was doing a leadership course, but within probably 10 minutes of talking, and I'd never met him before, we actually found this really common, intro, uh, I guess, a common background around our family upbringings. So everything I've probably shared to you in the in the last bit that we've spoken today, as well as his passion for cars. And it was like it was meant to be. And uh, so we would catch up often and, and I did talk to him and he's like, why would you consider maybe starting your own business when you've got a family business? Why maybe go back into that consulting world when you know how much pressure is put on to, to deliver and, you know, essentially you're just providing a business outcome for somebody else where you could be creating this legacy for your family. This is something your parents started in the 70s. Uh, imagine what you could achieve and the legacy you could create, not only for your mum, your siblings, your children, but for the future. And 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 it was it was literally a penny kind of drop moment or a light bulb moment where I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and probably one thing I, I I haven't shared, but my dad did pass away in two thousand and eight from prostate cancer, and you know he was a most active person, riding his bike hundreds of k's as a sixty year old, and very very engaged in the business right up until the day that he just physically couldn't anymore. And you know I think there's always that part too that you know my mum is seeing what what is what is happening now, and she's immensely proud. But I, I think about my dad's legacy and, and, and you know, think that um, it's great that I can do that for him as well. Talk about 
powerful. <laughs> that transcends P&Ls and business stuff in general. I mean, that that's way cool. <laughs> yeah. So you decided to take the plunge then. Yeah. So the, the person we had leading the business was, um, you know, looking at retirement. So the timing also was, was really good. So I, um, officially I took over in October 2019. Wow. Just to test your leadership going into COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You asked about, you know, um, when we previously spoke about biggest challenge and biggest opportunities and, you know, what I was thinking about it in preparation for today. And, and, and the first one I've got there is COVID. It's been absolutely the biggest challenge, but on the flip side, the biggest opportunity because I was in the role for about three months. So really in Australia, it started to get real in that kind of late January, early February the following year. Mm -hmm. So literally three months into the role, this happens. And I think that's why I put it as the biggest challenge and opportunity because it by far has been an immensely challenging time. And I'm not the only one saying that. And I think, you know, we could spend another two hours talking about that. But for me, I think, you know, it really, it brought us together as a team. It accelerated getting to know the team because we just were like, all right, guys, we need to link arms and get through this. And, you know, the resilience of the team, I'm so proud of them. Uh, the ability to stay in business and and be able to provide that work for the team to physically come to work and be engaged and be adding value, you know, whilst a lot of lot of their friends and family were either out of work or working from home where they were very disengaged with the community. Uh, I know a lot of people have reflected on that and and have been really grateful for that um, and just that change of scenery. And here we are now. Last Friday, we finally came out of our what we've been told will be our last lockdown. Um, Melbourne has had 262 days of lockdown since the pandemic started. Uh, that is a world record and not one that if you live in Melbourne, you're really particularly proud of. But again, it just gives, I guess, the listeners an extra lens around what we've had to deal with here. We're fortunate that we could have stayed open in some capacity, but seeing a very, very minimal amount of customers. And, um, you know, we've ramped up our online presence, but it's not the same as being open in our current normal model. So, yeah, onwards and upwards. What's the name of your family's company? Yeah, so we we have two names. Um, Pick Apart is our auto recycler, which is like a self-service dismantler like you have in the States. So that's a like-for-like -like type model. Um, we also have an online store for that business as well. And then our other business is called AA Recycling, which uh, is where we buy and sell metals. So again, my parents are very forward-thinking and, and it's, you know, <laughs> It's uh, the age-old saying that you don't realize how fantastic they are until you're kind of an adult and you have your own kids. And, uh, you know, I wish I had some of this insight before my dad had passed away, but I make sure I let mum know in, in spades, to, you know, that um, they're always very good at seeing the next thing. What's the next trend? What's the next opportunity? So in the, in the 90s, they put a Weybridge in adjacent to our pick-apart yard. So we buy and sell metal there, but it also gives us the opportunity to actually, um, you know, use it to, to sell on all of our end-of-life cars that come out of our yard. So all of the parts of the cars are recycled. So car bodies, engines, everything, tires. So you know, it's been a, a good opportunity to expand. So they're the two businesses and they're the names. Nice. Now, do you focus on one or do you oversee both? Yep. So I'm responsible for both. So for the strategic decisions and the day-to-day -day operations, um, both of the businesses. We essentially run them kind of together because one feeds the other. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm responsible for all of them. What vision do you have for the company? That is a really great question. And I think COVID has probably slowed this down a little bit, but it's also given people a chance to think about what do we want to be, you know, as a society in the future. I think the things like the pollution in heavily polluted countries and showing what COVID has done to minimize that in big cities has shown us what how big our issues are, which is a good thing for businesses like ours. And I think for me, we've got that kind of perfect storm where we've got We've got society saying we want to do more about the future, about recycling, about owning it, about being accountable for it, which has taken some time to get to. 
we've got the government, I think, ready to back it. And, and by backing it, I mean talking about it, but also delivering it with money to help get it going. And, and I'm talking predominantly here from Australia, but it, it is not dissimilar globally. And then I think we've got the, in, in auto, we've got the manufacturer's attention. They're sitting up and saying, we need to play our part around this concept of circular economy. We need to make sure that when we've sold our car to the, you know, in the shiny showroom with the shiny new car, we need to understand that when it comes to its end of life, that it's processed in the right way, in an environmentally friendly way. And then we've got this concept of electric vehicles as well, which is exciting and it's happening. And, you know, for us, it's evolving around how do we ensure that we can also process those cars? Because we've already got the early Priuses coming through, you know, with 2006 models, for example, coming through our yard and processing those with the batteries are very, is very different. So I think the opportunities are how do we lean into that and lead? And I think for us, it's around working with the car manufacturers to help them understand their obligation and supporting and working in partnership about being being that partner at the end of a car's life to effectively be able like to... Like what role would they play in that, Emma? I'm just trying to understand like what yeah. those conversations would be like. Yeah, so we've started them here in Australia and you know it really comes down to that concept of circular economy, um, their corporate social responsibility. So what is their responsibility for their car after it's sold to the first person? So when, when their car is uh, at the end of its life, whose responsibility is it to make sure that it ends up in the right hands to get processed in an environmentally friendly way and then recycled? So all the metals, all the plastics, all the glass, tyres, they are seeing it more and more as they want to understand what happens. And we're early stages, but understanding what their obligation is or wants to be to be an industry leader. So you know, they're talking about- What are you seeing so far? How would they participate in that? So I think it's around understanding, you know, an average car change hands eight times during its life. So I think for them, they'd be saying, well, do we have an obligation to understand at any point who is driving one of our cars? Do we have an obligation to understand when they're finished with their car? Do we want to potentially look at partnering with businesses like ours and saying, when you're finished with your car, you can take it to this company and this is what's going to happen to it. So obviously there's, you know, financial elements to that as well, but it's understanding that they, I think my my personal view is that they're much more interested and wanting to take, um, I guess, understand what happens and what role they want to play. Because, you know, you can talk about electric vehicles and climate action and zero emissions, but they're really thinking about their role right through the journey of the car to still be able to provide, um, I guess, a, a end state of getting to zero emissions when their car's ready, their petrol car is ready to be taken off the road, for example. And what happens to that? Wow. So it's exciting. It, it is real exciting. Mm. And our family is pretty big in the the recycling realm and, and just, I, I, I want a decent earth for my kiddos yeah. and my grandkids, you know? Yeah. I think- this is a good time to launch into the uh, red line round because I'm curious how you're going to respond to some of these questions, which I think will piggyback on this conversation quite nicely. So the red line questions, it's just five rapid fire questions, no right or wrong answer. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in your career? So I think my number one would be my mom. Um, and you know, fast following. What is mom's name? Jan. Jan. Yeah. And and if I say it right, mum. Yep. Yep. M U M. Not M O M. Mum. Mum. Yeah. I, I think you know. And again, it's it's as you become a parent yourself, um, you have a even you know a, a bigger respect for your own parent and and reflecting on the journey that they had to get you to where you are. I think, and you know, thinking about all my strengths as a as a as a mum as a friend. As a business person, you know, I, I see a lot of them in my mum. So maybe it's true you do turn into your mum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck? So I think this is a good one for me because I haven't been in the industry all my life. So for me, it's been not afraid to reach out to experts, to my colleagues, 
and and be open just to ask the question because you know nine times out of ten they'll love to share their information and they'd be happy to have a coffee and a chat I think that's the best way to get it I think I also use um, the internet a lot there's so much information on there that would probably be my other biggest one one of the things that I love about your story Emma is that you transcend industries and some women are like, oh, I didn't think to listen to your podcast because I thought it was just car stuff. I'm like, mm. yeah, we talk about that, but it, it's so much more than that. And I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in verticals or industry verticals, and it's hard for them to imagine switching industries. Mm. And you can get in the automotive, motorsports, or skilled trades industries in many different ways. It does not have to be a mechanic or a painter. And you're a perfect example of that where you have certain skill sets in that it, you can move industry verticals. And you're a perfect example of that. Absolutely. And um, I do sit on our Chamber of Commerce in Victoria for automotive. I do sit on our dismantling division. And I have to say, um, I am, I believe I'm the first female to join that committee. But again, the the fact is that I think I add a lot of value because I don't, I don't have, I haven't come through kind of born and bred. I haven't spent twenty years in automotive, being that voice that can see the bigger picture um, and bring different skill sets and ideas. I think is equally as valuable as having the subject matter experts. And I think you look at any boards, and it's you know where where boards are moving to in general is being, you know, having that balance yep. because that's how you make change. Yeah. And so far it's been great. I have, wouldn't have a bad thing to say about the team. They are all obviously males um, and I'm the only female, but, you know, they've we, we kind of have this team you know, environment. I don't feel uncomfortable. I feel well respected that I have a really good point of view to add to that and I back myself in that because I know I do and, you know, bringing outside views do take the group forward quite often. Um, I'm really proud of that. I love it. Emma, what excites you most about what you do? I think it's about really having, you know, the longer I spend in this role and think about all my experience into this role and, and what comes next around some of those bigger opportunities I spoke about is like what legacy can I create? And that's for my family, for my children, also for those that are newer to the industry. So I don't see it just as an opportunity. I see it as an obligation for me to be able to create a better environment for the next round of leaders. And what that means is me stepping up and into, you know, into joining committees where I'm the only female, into backing myself into that conversation, into calling it where I may have had an inappropriate comment from a male, um, is calling it and actually leaning in and giving them perspective on why it's not appropriate to talk like that anymore. Um, you know, I think I, I feel like I have a good way to deliver all types of news to people, whether it's positive or negative. And I, I am confident that I can give them the message in a positive way that leaves them feeling like they've left the room understanding how they can be a better person. And I think for me, for females, that's so important. Um, at the moment in Australia, we have around 40,000 apprentices in automotive and only 2,000 are women. So that's 5%. It's just not enough. Not. So for me, I I see, you know, a big thing that I would love to be able to influence and and help assist and lead and make it make it easier for the next leaders is to make that shift there. It's a big problem. Um, we also only have five percent of CEOs that are women in the automotive in Australia as well. So, you know, it's it's just not it's not good enough. Um, and there's a lot of people doing some great work to change that. But for me, I see that every opportunity or every conversation, whether it's with a customer, whether it's with a board member, whether it's out with a sponsor, to be able to educate proactively because it doesn't have to be a confrontational conversation. It can be done in a really respectful way on both sides, but it has to happen. And I see that as my kind of my legacy, but it's my obligation, I think. And and I guess I'm lucky that I've had broad experience that I have the confidence to do it and the experience. So I really want to make sure that I do that for the younger people coming through, for those 5% of apprentices that, you know, there is still um, only 50% that will complete their training, that's male and female, and 25 withdraw in the first 
12 months and that's male and female. So it's a big issue for females getting more opportunities, but there's something happening in there that there's not enough support or the right level of support to keep both male and females coming through the ranks. And, you know, I'd love to be able to share my experience to to change that. Absolutely. What's a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit. So I think the there's probably two. One is to go back to first principles. So sometimes we make things bigger in our head than they need to be. So if you just try and break it down and think, what am I really trying to solve here? Because usually when you go back to first principles of, of running a business, the problem becomes much more simpler and you can kind of tackle anything. So it might be, is it a people thing? Is it a um, finance thing? Is it a risk thing? Like what what was it we're trying to tackle? Just to break it down to make it easier. And the second one is, I think, is, where is where is where do you get the most value of where you spend your time? So, and should I be spending this much time on that? Uh, what's the right amount of time to spend on this? Because then it allows you to kind of go, you you know what, this only deserves five minutes, whereas I should be out there talking to the team, and I know I want to spend fifteen minutes with them, not the other way around. Yep. So they'd be my two. Perfect. And then finally, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in this industry? Yeah, I touched on it earlier, but it definitely would be. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to approach people that inspire you, female, male, other, inside or outside of your industry. Because as I said, nine times out of 10, I've had success in that they're very happy to spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes sharing their experience. And most people love to talk about themselves. Like it's, you know, I think most people, it's it's human nature. So if you're interested in understanding other people's journeys, don't be afraid to ask, have the confidence, tell them why. And, you know, I think nine times out of 10, they would make the time to have a quick chat to you. And that's a really great way to open up and learn things, but also to expand your network because through that you might meet somebody else and that might lead to an opportunity. And you just don't know until you ask. And as I said, over my 20 years, I would absolutely hand on heart say nine times out of 10, people have made the time. I couldn't agree with you more, Emma. I started this podcast. Yeah. I, re- I remember telling my partner, like, hey, I'm going to do a podcast. She's like, what? On what? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I want to talk to women and feature women in the automotive, skilled trades, and motorsports industries. She's like, who are you going to interview? I'm like, I don't know yet. <laughs> She's like, when are you starting this? I'm like, I'm going to start it in two weeks. She's like, do you have someone lined up? I'm like, yeah. nope. Not yet. <laughs> and and that's the thing. Like, it was pure blind faith that – and she even asked me, she's like, do you think people are going to talk to you? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. But what I do know is that the answer is always no if you never ask and reach out. Mm. You've taken – all possibilities away from yourself before you even had the opportunity to let it flourish. And it turns out a lot of people said yes. Mm. Matter of fact, I have more people saying yes than I have time to actually do interviews. It's a good problem to have. But at that moment, (laughs) it was like, so, and I remember her saying, so let me get this straight, Jamie. (laughs) You're going to start a podcast. You don't have anyone to interview right now. You don't know how you're going to find people. You don't know. And I'm like, yep, that's pretty much it. (laughs) So sometimes it's just a matter of diving blindly into it. Mm. And I'll tell you what, Emma, and you jump in if you disagree with me. There is a strong sisterhood in this automotive, skilled trades, motorsports industry world. There's a strong sisterhood where we genuinely, want to help other women succeed in this. There's always the token, bad apple, in anywhere, in anything. The majority, the the mass majority of women, it's just a matter of just just reaching out and asking. And and I don't know about you, Emma, but when I say email me, Mm. (laughs) yeah, yeah, DM me. Seriously. Like I will it may not be immediate answer, but I always get around to them. <laughs> it 
would you say that's the case for you? Which leads mm. me into the next question before I jump to that. But would you say that's accurate for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've had people reach out on LinkedIn that actually had read an article that was there about me. And, you know, I was like, yep, when, when COVID's over, come and I'll take you on a tour of the yard. You know, I'll share what I know about the business and industry. And that, that I think particularly backing each other and, and rewarding people that do go out on a limb and ask, because that's, that's how I started, is, yeah, I definitely take the time. And, I, and it's an opportunity to, to know, get to know somebody else, get to know their story but also share a bit about what we do because then hopefully then they go and tell a few more people and, you know, it creates change. Absolutely. Which is a natural progression into the next thing. Where and how can people connect with you and your company? Yes, fantastic. So we have a website, pickapart.com.au. I'm happy for you to publish my email as well. That's emma at aarecycling.com.au. We have two sites in Melbourne. If anyone's local or ever in Melbourne, reach out and I'd love to take you on a tour and I'd love to share a bit more about what we do and and learn about what you do. But they're the main ways. I'm also on LinkedIn. So if you're interested in uh, creating a connection there, please send me a quick invite and and let me know that you heard through here and I'd love to, to chat and talk to you that way as well. Love it. Emma, thank you so much for being in the driver's seat today and sharing your journey with us and really getting people to think outside the box of, hey, you you can have a place here in the automotive industry, period. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for your time and the opportunity. I'm Emma McIndoe. I'm a managing director and I'm a femcanic. Rachel Alfonso is in the driver's seat next. She grew up surrounded by cars, and was determined to build a career in the industry. She has worked for mechanic shops and dealerships all over South Florida. This determination opened the door for her to work alongside one of Florida's greatest rare car collectors. Through these connections, she was able to launch the world's first and only children's book, written to teach kids automotive history through facts, graphics, and authentic sounds. Join me next week to hear the journey of determination from this entrepreneur and author. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribed for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?